In some ways, the existence of Bridge Over Troubled Waters is a more genuine expression of friendship in the lyrics. When Simon and Garfunkel recorded the title track of their final album, the two hated each other. They were months away from breaking up. Even at his most acrimonious, Simon knew he owed Garfunkel goodbye. His farewell is his masterpiece, a stirring ode to the give and take of devotion. Bridge Over Troubled Water, arguably Simon's most compelling piece of poetry, is a beautiful confirmation that no matter what hardship one faces, all you need is a partner in arm's length. When someone is so entangled with another soul, just a silhouette can relieve external or internal doubt. If I dare listen to the song in more vulnerable moments, it without a doubt fills me with tears. Simon gave a secular hymn of cooperation to a collaborator he had grown to hate. The gesture proves he knew what Garfunkel meant to him. As a parting gift, the less celebrated member of the duo took lead on the group's best-selling single. As much as I would love to dedicate a show to my undying love of Pedro Trowater, the tangent has little to do with my main topic. For Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about things we are grateful for. Even a grumpy cat like Simon can admit when he needs a friend. We all can use a helping hand from time to time, especially when terrorists threaten to blow us up. In 1985, Paul Simon was flying high. Unfortunately, it was a plane over apartheid South Africa. International artists boycotted the country over horrible institutional racism. Simon pushed that issue aside. He knew a hit when he heard one. The album Graceland was a glorious meld of western pop conventions and arrhythmic South African chanting. You Can Call Me Out is just about as perfect as the song could be, but many citizens found it insulting. With Graceland, Simon appeared on scores of best of lists and a few hit lists. When Simon returned to South Africa in 1992, the Anzanian People's Organization made their anger clear. Members of the AZAPO, a radical anti-apartheid activist group known to engage in extrajudicial violence, stormed the concert promoter's office. They had planned other means of keeping Simon off the stage, until Stephen Van Zant stepped in. Van Zant is the beloved guitarist of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band and played Silvio Dante on The Sopranos. In the late 1980s, Van Zant branched out to international activism. The highlight of this work was the 1985 song Sun City. 50 top-tier musicians, including Pat Benatar, Lou Reed, Run DMC, Peter Gabriel, Africa Bamata, George Clinton, and Bruce Springsteen, came together to condemn South Africa's troubling condition and President Ronald Reagan's inaction. Like all charity mega-singles, the runtime is as bloated as the egos. This time, the artist put the money where the mouth is, and swore not to play any venue in South Africa. It's also the closest thing to tolerable any of these 80s feel-good records ever managed. The number 39 hit had tangible benefits. All proceeds raised funds for ANC-affiliated schools, and it ironically saved the life of the person who most famously flounded the boycott. On a goodwill tour of South Africa, Van Zant stopped by an AZAPO compound. He spotted the group's list of assassination targets. 
Paul Simon's name sat on top. Van Zant talked the group out of killing him with the convincing argument, I understand your feelings about this. I might even share them, but it's not going to help anyone if you knock off Paul Simon. AZAPO was swayed with a plea that basically came down to, listen, we all want to murder Paul Simon, but who's that going to help? Simon was spared. He spent his newly earned decades supporting milk toast ads instead of abusive government for dreams. Good choice. These are the days of miracle and wonder and don't cry, baby, don't cry, don't cry. This is Off Key. I'm Jeff Youngman, and with me is the big Thanksgiving turkey himself, Nate Youngman. Gobble, gobble, gobble. Our theme this week is being thankful for musicians who save lives. Here we go with Act 1, dot, dash, dot. Morse code is frequently referenced in pop culture. While it is well known that Samuel Morse invented the electromagnetic telegraph that was used to transmit the Morse code, it is probably lesser known that Morse was a renowned artist and also a leader in the anti-Catholic, anti-immigration, and pro-slave movements. Huh. What does SOS stand for? Sucky old scientist? The most recognized Morse code message is, of course, SOS, which consists of three dots, three dashes, and three dots. Although the common belief is that SOS stands for Save Our Ship or Save Our Souls or Same Old a it actually does not stand for anything. It's just an easy to send and easy to recognize message. The use of Morse code is often depicted in spy, war, or disaster books and movies. But Morse code also has been incorporated into music as well, such as in the theme to Mission Impossible, which we played at the beginning of Act 1. Other examples of the Morse code in music include the opening riff of Russia's song, YYZ. That riff is actually Morse code for the song's title, which, by the way, is the airport code for the Toronto Pearson International Airport. In Radioactivity by Kraftwerk, the title of the song is spelled out in Morse code twice. At the end of London Calling by The Clash, guitarist Mick Jones plays a string of notes that spell out S.O.S. S.O.S. is also spelled out in Morse code on the keyboard played by Nick Rhodes, three minutes into the Union of the Snake by Duran Duran. Ironically, neither the Swedish pop group ABBA or Rihanna use Morse code in their songs, both titled S.O.S. However, for the most famous use of Morse code in the song, we have to go back to 2010 Columbia, South America, and a song called Better Days. The Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, that'd be F-A-R-C, was a group of communist guerrilla insurgents operating in rural Colombia. FARC's tactics included mass kidnappings, abducting thousands of people over a 50-year period. 
FARC would use these captives to try to get ransom or have their political demands met. In 2010, 16 members of the Colombia military were being held captive. Locating where those captives were was not difficult, but rescuing them was. It was FARC's practice to immediately execute hostages when a rescue was attempted. If the hostages were going to survive a rescue attempt, they would somehow have to get advance word so that they could be on the alert and ready to run into the jungle. The danger, of course, was that FARC would intercept the message prior to the rescue attempt. Enter Colonel Jose Espejo, a communications expert with the Colombian Army. Colonel Espejo was tasked with getting a radio message to the captives that would go undetected by the guerrillas. He needed an idea. Colonel Espejo turned to his old friend Juan Carlos Ortiz. Ortiz was an advertising executive who had a talent for creating clever commercials, earning him the reputation of the Don Draper of Colombia. One of his most famous ads was an anti-drug TV spot for the Colombian president's office. The ad showed an addict on a bus mistaking a fellow passenger's dandruff for cocaine and snuffing it up his nose. The ad won a Cannes Gold Lion, the advertising industry's Oscar, and a commendation from the First Lady of Colombia. However, it also earned Ortiz death threats from FARC, who relied on the cocaine market to fund their decades-old campaign against the Colombian government. Ortiz had designed other unorthodox campaigns to battle FARC before. In 2008, he dreamed up an operation to persuade pregnant female guerrillas to defect by airdropping 7 million pacifiers into the jungle. Ortiz also illuminated giant Christmas trees across the jungle to remind guerrillas what they were missing. Another time, he wrote messages promoting peace on soccer balls and floated them down the river to the FARC encampments. Colonel Espejo was aware that the FARC guerrillas allowed the hostages to have access to radio as a way to relieve the tedium of their situation, so radio was the obvious choice to carry a message. At first, Ortiz suggested hiding a message in the quickly spoken fine print at the end of a radio commercial, but then hit on the idea of using Morse code in a song instead. Ortiz pitched the Morse code idea to Esperjo, who loved it. Esperjo's thinking was that captive soldiers trained in Morse code were more likely to detect a hidden message than those untrained FARC captors. Ortiz then went to Carlos Portello, a record producer at Radio Bemba, a small recording studio. Portello was told that the military wanted him to produce a song so popular that it would enter the Lista 40, Colombia's billboard charts, while at the same time plant a Morse code message into the song. In September 2010, once the song titled Better Days was mastered, it was recorded by Natalia Guterres y Angelo, two session musicians who worked on advertising jingles at Radio Bemba. Once completed, Better Days on its face appeared to be just one more example of popular music on the charts. However, worked within the song's melody was a message of Morse code timed to the song's rhythm. At the end of one stanza in the song, there was a line, Listen to this message, brother, and following that line was the Morse code message. 19 people rescued, you are next, don't lose hope. Better days went out through rural Colombia thanks to the government-owned radio stations. An estimated 3 million people heard the song, including the hostages and their captors. Better Days was a success. Some hostages escaped and others were rescued. For those not immediately rescued, Better Days gave them hope. By December 2010, FARC released an additional 33 hostages, including the remainder of the 16 Colombian military hostages. To top it off, in 2011, Juan Carlos Ortiz won his second Cannes Gold Lion for Better Days, and that Gold Lion did not come with any death threats. You're listening to WOHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio.
All right, that that was a very um, impressive story. I'm amazed by how creative those people could be. It reminds me of that movie, Argo. Remember that? I do remember that. Argo, yourself. Yeah. Why did that movie win Best Picture? I don't well, know. I can't answer that, but I still like the movie. <laughs> All right, speaking of movies, here's my act. Let's put in that VHS tape right now. Hello and welcome. Thank you for choosing beautiful Oceanus. I cannot imagine a better way to spend the summer of 1991 than aboard one of our top-line vessels. Since 1952, our cruise line has taken tourists around the Cape of Africa. If there's one thing you associate with early 1990s South Africa, it's a fun vacation. Our captain has more than 30 years as an experienced seaman, so you know you're in good hands. Passengers are our main priority. Make sure to swing by our dining room. It's the ship's little hole in the wall. While you're there, pick up a complimentary shrimp cocktail. You will never find fresher seafood anywhere. We promise it'll be a vacation you are sure to never forget. Oceanus. We put the U in luxury and underwater. Spoiler alert for the best-selling VHS of 1997, and also reality, the Titanic sank. The hubris-powered ship blundered into an iceberg. The movie captures smaller moments aboard the doomed vessel. In a noble salute to the power music, the ship's orchestra played the final chords of Near My God to Thee until they were swallowed by the sea. It is a pure, sentimental tearjerker. It's also a bad call. I would have turned that upright bass into a flotation device. You blew that one. Bad move, guys. Elsewhere, the captain saves as many people as he can before making the same sacrifice. That is the way we imagine people act. There's a reason that that movie is classified as fiction. On August 2nd, 1991, local businessman Winston Saad chartered Oceanus Cruise Line to host his son's wedding. 400 guests climbed aboard to attend the lavish affair. Poseidon must have had a beef with the newlyweds. Almost immediately, a powerful storm battered the ceremony with rain and gusts. The rough waters forced the boat to darken a harbor. Guitarist Moss Hill tried to keep the crowds happy with music. With the cutesy chant, We'll provide the rock, the ship provides the roll. That's good, I like that. The partygoers had as much fun as they could have in circumstance. Waiters crashed into each other, plates and glasses slid off the tables, dancers flopped on the ground, the organist, ill from the sea sickness, vomited on her pipes and kept playing. Oh, good. Not the best start to the marriage. The honeymoon did not fare much better. It began peaceful enough. By morning, the storm clouds had parted. The sun came in to kick off any of the enjoyable things to do on a ship. Dad, I'm going to let you list a few fun activities on a cruise. Go. Uh, nothing. I hate cruises. What about trivia? Trivia and I got to drink all the chocolate milk I could. That's true. While the guests were doing standard cruise ship fun-tivities like sitting poolside and listening to lousy cover bands, the captain was panicking. The storm the night before had thrown the boat completely off course. They were hours behind schedule. To make up for lost time, the captain gunned the engine. The bruise system was pushed to its limit. Ironically, because of this decision, the boat never made its destination. In a fatal mistake, the straining Oceanus crashed into a rogue monster wave at top speed. Towering wall of water pummeled the hull with tremendous force. A neglected seal broke free from the energy. Like a real seal? Like... Fantastic. The now missing plate started to seep. A drip grew to a trickle, which grew to a stream. The unit paneling filled and bulged. When the side caved, the engine room flooded at lightning speed. Moisture stalled the machines. The generators immediately switched off and lost power. The ship's still-under-repair waste disposal system spilled over. Anyone in the wrong spot 
got caught as toilets, showers, and sinks leaked sewage. If someone took time to notice, the warnings were clear. Three floors above, vacationers laughed and partied, unaware of the looming disaster. In the meantime, they could make their way to the Cantina Lounge for Moss Hill's Rock and Roll Review. Alright. Yeah, I feel good. I knew I would. So good. So good. I got you. Before that night, Moss Hill was a nobody. Like most musicians, he never quite caught that big break. He struggled for years, never getting the elusive gig to set him on the path of fame. Resigned, he took a post on a cruise ship circuit. There is a dignity to that job. Every night, people become happy from hearing your music. For most people, oldies cover bands are not the best route to stardom. Yet Hill made sure people would always remember his name. Right as Hill stepped into the spotlight, it went out. Water clogged generators killed electricity. A consummate entertainer, Hills made the show go on. With no powers for speakers or microphones, Hills strummed an acoustic guitar and the dim glow of emergency lights. The crowd joined in into a mass sing-along. It was the last happy moment the Oceanists ever hosted. Piano Man can only hold people off for so long. <laughs> Morale started to turn. In between songs, passengers kept asking what's going on. It was clear that something wasn't right. Whenever Hills asked the crew for answers, they insisted, everything's under control, nothing's wrong, don't worry about it. How about a verse of Here Comes the Sun? Hills was fed up with the captain's excuses. Though certainly no expert, Hills had spent fair time on the sea. He recognized that the vibrations meant that the ship was taking on water, and fast. Maybe he was wrong. Why should he second-guess the captain's years of nautical experience? If he was going to stage a mutiny, he needed proof. Together with magician Julianne Butler, Hills made their way to the crew-only area. It was dark and deserted. Thick globs of oil coated the stairwell. The sorceress and mop-top for hire slipped and bonked their way down the stairs. Thankfully, suddenly cushioned their fall. The only problem, that thing was the Indian Ocean. He ran to the ship's bridge to report it. Surely the captain would want to know that the boat was sinking. Good news for Hill, Captain Giannis Arvanis was well aware of this fact. That's why he had already left for the lifeboats. All right. You just said that about captain doesn't leave a sinking ship. He, he didn't go by that matter. Oh, this is so dumb what he did. So the crew realized very quickly that the ship was beyond saving. The entire senior command abandoned the bridge for near empty lifeboats without warning the passengers or notifying rescue patrol. Captain Avanis tried to flee three different times. However, he kept getting called back in to do his job. Eventually, when things were beyond his control, he wandered off through the stairwell and took a smoke break. Everybody's <laughs> a butt once in a while. Considering that there were now exactly zero officers aboard the ship, Hills essentially appointed himself captain. He raced back to the entertainment deck, gathering all the help he could. A ragtag gang of a cabaret singer, a guitarist, and a magician. Well, all that stood between 600 people and certain death. Hill got to organizing the evacuation routes. His first priority was opening a clear path from the crowds to the lifeboats. This was not an easy goal. The water had shifted the boat's weight, throwing off the gravitational balance. The right side tilted much higher than it normally does. The extra feet made half the lifeboats inoperable. Coupled with the fact that the crew had already evacuated on the other half, there were barely any boats to go around. Then, there was a problem of even getting to the boats. Emergency doors should do two things. Work in an emergency and be doors. That's, guess. that's every word, what yeah. I just said. Two of the ship's emergency doors failed the one time they were asked to do a job. The root hill carved out of the hallway led to the aft. Two of the emergency doors were supposed to stay closed to block off traffic. The hinges snapped, so the doors swung open, creating a wide gap along the path. The hallway turned into a makeshift cliff. If someone on the increasingly angular deck slipped through, 
It was a straight shot to the bottom. Passengers jumped over the cusp to reach their only shot at safety. The crew needed to figure out something. You have to admire Hill's idea. Hill sacrificed his own body to save others. Bracing his feet and extending his arms across the path, he stretched himself across the opening. Weary crowds walked over his rigid body as a temporary relic. Get out of here. I can't quite figure out how to compare him. He laid down like some sort of bridge over some type of waters. <laughs> Let me think about it. I'll get yeah. back to you. Thankfully, Hill only had to keep this position for a few dozen guests. One passenger returned with some rope, and the remaining guests guided themselves with a new handrail. The troubles were not over yet. Getting passengers into the lifeboats was also dangerous. The unsecured boats swayed in the wind. They crashed aside at frightening speed. Hills, yet again, stepped to put his health on the line. He rode the boats like a rodeo. When the lifeboat swung over the side, he put one foot on the lifeboat and one on the ship. In a momentary lull, passengers had to jump in. Hill then leapt back on the deck before starting again. 400 times, Hill leapt 80 feet above the ocean between a wrecking ball-like obstacle. Luckily, no passengers fell into the sea or caught between the lifeboats. That's amazing. The last lifeboat left with approximately 220 people still on board. Hill's next mission had two goals, impede the flow of water and find a new source of help. If he could not solve the first, the second would be moot. The ocean had overtaken the second floor. A gushing stream in the dining room cascaded through the main lobby. Plugging that source could at least make the submerged hallways navigable. The dining room was a murky abyss of broken furniture and shattered glass. Trying to swim through three feet of flotsam risked getting crushed or slashed. There was an alternative path, but it was nearly just as foolish. As the ship rolled, the entire lake slid to one half of the room. The hef momentarily kept the pool to the side before crashing to the opposite wall. The water bowled like a pendulum. For a split second, part of the room was perfectly dry. If he timed it right, he could bolt across the shallow end and reach the door. He monitored, counting the beats between the crests. He waited to make sure he had his math right. He was confident. They both took off. The water chugged. He dashed across the chamber. A closing-in wall of debris raced alongside him. Like Indiana Jones, he slid to the elevator stage right as the wave crashed upon him. He bowled the door shut. The current subsided. He brought the passengers some more time. Now, that's amazing. He is like Indiana Jones. Yeah. I can see Harrison Ford doing that. Now, one of those passengers definitely needed extra minutes. A group of travelers could not find their missing companion, Louise. She had not been seen since the evacuation started. Louise's family insisted that she was stuck in their cabin. Yet again, Hill volunteered to rescue. He descended down the hallways to find her room. His body slammed against the door, trying to dislodge any obstacle. Louise walked up and greeted him. The pajama-clad 20-year-old stood in the frame, puzzled to why the stranger kept making such a noise. Hill tried to warn her that, You're in grave peril. Come with me immediately. But she was like, No. I've been chilling in my bedroom reading a book for the past 40 minutes. <laughs> That's Valentine, baby, you know? <laughs> if not for Hill, Louise would have surely drowned. So that's one down, 219 to go. Help was finally on the way. Captain Detmer of a nearby ship intercepted Oceana's mayday calls. Hill took the radio to explain what was going on. To get a sense of how serious everything was, Detmer asked Hill's technical questions about the craft's ability. Taking Hill's lack of maritime knowledge as a sign they were being pranked, and anger Detmer demanded to know Hill's rank, to which he responded, guitarist. I knew he was going to say that. Captain Detmer contacted the South African Air Force and Navy. The military dispatched 16 rescue helicopters. In the time between, Hill's kept the crowd calm by playing his favorite song, Hey Jude. Hadn't those poor people suffered enough? <laughs> Judy, 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 Judy. I like Hey Jude, I know you don't. Yeah. As their hope renewed, water continued to pool underneath. The helicopters arrived four hours later upon a practically perpendicular vessel. People tied themselves to any surface they could find to avoid falling off the ever-tilting floor. Not all guests could stand on the near vertical deck. With the deck so steep, the ship rolling about, 
At least 10 passengers lost their footing. The bodies nearly slid into the deep. Hills! <laughs> How did I know that was coming? Fastened to the railing, jumped around the slanted deck like Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible. Outrunning gravity, Hills personally grabbed every passenger as they fell down the side. If only barely. Hill grabbed two women just as they fell over the railing into the sea. With one hand on the pole and the other clutching their harness, the trio hanged over the side. The swaying boat pinned their swinging bodies. The bruised Hill lacked the strength to pull them up. In a reversal of fortune, it was now Hill's time to be rescued. Bandmates Geraldine Massine and the shop assistant Ronan Leonard lifted the three back to safety. Hills did not have time to relax following that near-death experience. There was another one right away. A wild harness snagged itself to the railing. There was an immediate danger that the high winds and rolling might jerk the line, bringing the helicopter down. Without thinking, he jumped over the railing with one hand on the side of the ship and the other hand to free the harness. He was not out of danger yet because his wife saw him do it. <laughs> In the middle of the disaster, she still found time to call him an idiot. I was about to say, I bet you started yelling at him. I know somebody who would do the same thing for me. Mm -hmm. Hills was finally airlifted mere moments before the ship was completely enveloped. All 571 people on board the ship were saved. A Greek board of inquiry found the crew guilty of negligence. Duh! Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. Despite all his amazing feats, it's important to remember that Hills was no action hero. He was just some goofy schmuck who helped when he could. Amazingly, Hills still works in the cruise line industry. Before COVID shut everything down, he released an original song about his beloved occupation. In honor of Mr. Hills' valor, let's give it a spin. Hopefully, his life continues to be smooth sailing. He's earned it. Freedom to go just where I choose. Freedom from these low-down, locked-down blues. Puts on my best pair of travel shoes. Book a plane ticket out of here. I'm going on a cruise. Quite the adventure story there, Nate. I can't believe they haven't made a movie out of it yet. Before we end and head out to eat some Thanksgiving dinner, do you have a closing story for us today? Why, yes, I do, Dad. Yeah, I'll be darned. Our main story is focused on obviously great values. Empathy, ingenuity, bravery. It's time to celebrate lesser moments. Far too often, the day-to-day -day rituals of existence are dismissed as minor annoyances. That's a too close-minded view for my taste. Life is an interconnected chain of small joys. It just takes a lot for us to realize it. For the choir members of the Westside Baptist Church in Beatrice, Nebraska, routine to find a life. Every Wednesday afternoon at 4.30, Reverend Walter Klumpel opened the church, lit the furnace, and went home to enjoy dinner with his family. Then he, his wife, and daughter headed back to church for 7.20 choir rehearsal. They had that day down to the clock strike. None of the 14 members dared trailblade. The strict choir director, F.E. Paul, promptly started practice to the minute. The Klimples repeated the cycle for years. Every Wednesday, light the furnace, grab a meal, arrive at 7.20. There's comfort in that uniformity. Structure is a simple solution against the chaos around us. Not all things can be planned. March 1st, 1950 started like any other Wednesday. Reverend Klimple lit the furnace so the church would be warm by practice. As he walked back home, he failed to notice that a gas pipe behind the church had gotten loose. Instead of heat, the church filled with natural gas. The Reverend's family waxed around the dinner table, filling up for that night's performance. After his daughter changed into a new dress, the Klimples began their weekly walk. From the heightened spot over the hill, they could see their house of worship. And then they saw... The sacred hall had exploded. Gas had built up inside for hours, creeping its way into every corner. When the automatic pilot light tripped on, the church ignited in a fiery blast. Windows shattered, walls caved in. The roof above 
jumped before forcefully crashing right where the choir gathered every night. Whoa. Debris flew with such intensity, a stray board struck down a nearby radio tower. Firefighters extinguished the flames and started the unenviable chore of recovering remains. Except there weren't any. Be it divine intervention or a remarkable set of coincidences, none of the 14 members made the church on time. Little squabbles delayed them just enough to avoid calamity. Reverend Klimple's daughter kept the family behind by spilling a bit of drink on her dress. Her fashion-conscious mother ironed a new one, costing them that few precious moments. The usually punctual LaDonna Vandergriff was known to arrive early. On that night, a particularly tricky math problem gave the high school sophomore trouble. Quiet pianist Marilyn Paul was supposed to be at church by 6.45. She had fallen asleep after a big dinner. Her mother, also a choir member, decided to wake up at 7.15. Thanks to minor inconveniences ranging from car troubles to feeling under the weather to catching the end of a favorite show, every member stayed away in time. Miraculously, this was the first time any one of them had ever run late, let alone all of them simultaneously. Goes to show what great things can happen when you take the time to slow down. Hallelujah. Goodbye, everybody.